And welcome back in another episode of the Stripe Show podcast. The West Coast swing didn't disappoint Riviera. What a turn of that was. Max Homa gets the win over my boy, Tony Fino. I thought it was his time. I thought it was going to be his time there. 72nd hole home and missed that putt. And I was like, you know what? Fino's going to get that second win. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. The LA kid got his second win uh, to round out the West Coast swing. Genesis Invitational. Now the tour moves over here to Florida. It's the Florida swing, and I uh, figured, well, let's bring in these Florida guys. And uh, joining me here uh, on the podcast here on a Wednesday, one of the top teachers uh, in the game, Price on Golf Channel. There with Chris Coma did a nice job there uh, with his show. He's down there in Jupiter. Florida, the Die Preserve Golf Club, and he joins me here, Jeff Leishman. How you doing, Jeff? I'm great. Not Mark's brother, by the way, as I get that all the time. I think he's Mark's brother. No, he's not. He, Jeff Leishman is not Mark Leishman's brother. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Yeah. <laughs> We're distant cousins, but uh, no, not uh, directly related. Okay. Well, now that we got that out of the way, I know you um, you work with a lot of good players uh, down there uh, in Jupiter. Uh, a lot of good, really good collegiate players. I know you have some Champions Tour players, uh, some guy on the PGA Tour and Corn Ferry Tour as well. Uh, but one of your guys, uh, Andrew Cozen, right? Andrew Cozen there at the University of Auburn just won the Gator Invitational. Is that right? Yeah, he was tied first. Um, in the I, I, in this time, they don't uh, do playoffs or they are you know the some of the restrictions. But yeah, he was tied first at the Gator Invitational. Probably made a lot of people in Gainesville unhappy over that one. <laughs> and another guy there in the University of Florida, freshman. Uh, Joe, Joe Pagden, he's uh, he's a special one. He was actually the number one ranked junior player in the country and now a freshman at uh, University of Florida. He's been a student of yours as well. Yeah, yeah, for a few years now, had a lot of experience and the upcoming Walker down here. Wow, wow. Now, you also have just a thing there with motion capture. I think he said motion capture palooza 2021. I think that was in your uh, post on Instagram, Jeff underscore Leishman Golf. You can follow him there. And uh, you had our buddy John Sinclair there, who, you know, is probably one of the best in the 3D world. You know, I'm curious. I've done some stuff in the 3D world, and it's amazing stuff. You know, you, you certainly can measure everything now or just about everything now in the world of 3D. And it's a little different than 2D and what your eyes are telling you. I'm curious for someone who's had a lot of experience at, like you and working so closely with John. What are, what are maybe one or two things that when you look at 3D, it's always very interesting for you to see as a teacher, as you start peeling back the onion with your players, like what are those one or two, maybe three things that you really like to dive into? Well, uh, for 3D for me, been enlightening when I look at two-dimensional video, 2D, because it starts to change your eye in uh, what may be appear that is going on and what is actually going on. So the phrase that comes up often in golf is the difference between uh, a player, a reel and feel, but then in structure teacher world, okay, what are you visualizing and what is going on, even if you're looking at something in slow motion? And then the interaction in the pieces. So 3D really helps to look at uh, the relationship between um, one thing that may seem idiosyncratic and mm -hmm. Uh, another thing that really is structural or may ultimately be a problem, but may, might go up either to your eye or into a dimensional video. One of the things that is interesting, I was talking to John about this um, at one of the seminars that we did. I think we we're up in um, at Andrew Rice's there. And he was saying that all, all the tour players that he has put into 3D, that 
it's like 99% from the top, no matter what their risk condition is at the top, that risk is moving towards more flexion uh, in the downswing, right? There, there's very few, very few of any that are, you know, kind of pulling down on it per se, where it starts to work into extension. We know there's some that, that have that. Mark Leishman would be one who carries that fairly deep into the downswing, but getting that player to start working towards flexion in the downswing early is something that he sees a lot with the top players. Yeah. The uh, closing of the club earlier, because that's mm -hmm. really what we're talking about when we're talking about these wrist angles is to um, uh, in transition specifically, but uh, earlier in the downswing to get the club face closed earlier seems to, if we're looking at the database, we still need to use words like seems to, because we're yeah. talking Always an outlier. You want to be careful with um, uh, making big, broad, same statements uh, because right. if you say something like that, someone will come along and is doing something differently. But uh, that there's a, a, a great deal of people that close the club early, and mm -hmm. the ones that are easy to see are the Dustin Johnsons. You know, have that the, that pronounced uh, wrist angle at the top. The other ones that do it more gradual, they they may do it to the same volume or the same amount that, that uh, someone like Dustin is doing. It's just, it is blended in there. And that is where, uh, in two, you may not really pick up on that, um, especially when, depending on frame rate of whatever you're looking at. And then if you look at it on um, a 3D graph and you see the rate in which that's occurring, then that starts to allow you to look back and go, oh yeah, I mean, I really do see how much that wrist is working because it's not always gonna show up in the club face position. If you mm. look out independently, it'll look like that in, with the club. But if you blend it with the body, so a, a pretty common video analysis position is when the club gets to parallel to the ground uh, on the downswing, where is that club face? And um, for a long time, it was certainly in my life, like you wanted it to be sort of vertical, where people are looking at more, say, a relationship to their spine angle. Rather than looking at those in a two-dimensional image, you actually have real degree measurements that you can say, all right, this club has closed this much in this range. And then the term a lot more is rate of closure. How, how fast is this thing closing? Um, more specifically through the impact area, that's the one that also seems to have a direct relationship to high-level golf. You don't really want the club closing too fast through the impact area. Right. And as a player, as they start to work that lead wrist and deflection, the face is starting to close. I mean, that's kind of, you show that to an amateur player for the first time. And that's like a, that is a big deal because usually, you know, and they get the shaft to kind of lay down a bit more and the face is now better prepared. And all of a sudden light goes on. It's like, now I can, wow, I can just kind of turn and hit it. I don't really need to, you know, compensate per se as much at the bottom with my arms and hands. We take it for granted with the best players, but when you're working with an amateur golfer, which I know you work with as well, right? A lot of um, single digits, perhaps low teens. This is a common uh, conversation that you would have with a player who's learning how to do that perhaps for the first time. How do you, when you're trying to get him into flexion, are you putting your, are you just kind of getting in there and showing them, look, here's where I want your wrist to start to do, or is it, a different application where you're trying to get the pivot maybe to move it, or is it kind of a blend of the two um, depending upon how they're going to learn it? Well, this is the real value of hanging out with people like John and um, other people in the industry like um, Chris Cuomo and yeah. um, 
uh, Sasha McKenzie, uh, that it's less um, about the actual measurement and more about the application. That was the word you used. Okay, how are we going to apply this to this person? Right. A borrowed, oh, well, probably stole, from uh, John, my buddy, is that he takes, uh, have someone go up to the top, and he actively tries to, while they're gripping the club at the top of their backswing, to twist it open, the opposite movement. So he's taking from behind, grabbing the club head, and twisting it open and asking the player to resist that. Uh, so that they then feel the movement themselves to close it to offset winning feel. Um, and then that tends to create uh, a good domino effect, sequential effect in those movements. And then with a little bit of monitoring, making sure that they, well, everybody tends to overdo it. And overdoing mm -hmm. it for some is helpful. Yeah, because they, yeah, right. They've never felt that before because they're always, you know, the other way from a different grip and rolling it, which, you know, takes it into extension or they're, and they're trying to pull down on it to some degree. You know, there's different things that'll lead to that, but educating their hands per se and getting them prepared. And then from there, just kind of, man, in instincts can tend to take over, right? And let them go. Sometimes I'll tell players, look, I'd rather have that face five, six degrees closed than one degree open in the development of where I'm trying to take you. Don't be alarmed if the face is a little shut and you hit some poles early. We'll kind of work that as we go. We just can't have that this way extended with the face open. Right, and, and another really old that um, John and I were working with just the other day is, uh, is um, I'm gonna call it a medium-sized medicine ball. So something with a diameter of about eight inches, six inches. Uh, them thinking through those motions and actually having them do the opposite. All right, currently, when you're at the top of your backswing, your wrists are doing this. And that's usually when you get a light bulb moment. Like, whoa, okay, like, now the thing is, how do they transfer that when they're actually holding the golf clubs? It's helpful then to um, coordinate both hands because there's a lot of talk about the lead wrist. And just as important is what the trail wrist is doing because you want wrist to be able to go into more extension that matches that and sometimes that's the tricky part because if someone is a right-handed golfer and they're a dominant right-handed you get them talking about their lead wrist and they don't really have this awareness that's a good point i was talking with um david ledbetter just a couple weeks ago after patrick won uh the tournament there and i i was watching my observation when i was watching patrick's rehearsal swings and he was bringing it down and to the camera and to my eye, you could see the left wrist flexing out more. You could see the face definitely more shut for him earlier in the downstroke. And I asked him, I said, is, is he feeling the left wrist? He said, no, he's feeling the right wrist. Huh. And, and I said, interesting. You know, it's as a teacher for me, like I'll tend to go to the lead, but, and the, but the, the trail, as you said, is equally important. And for Patrick, all the feel is in his trail wrist, is more extension back in his trail wrist to get the club face more shut, right, earlier in the downstroke, so he has to do less with it at the bottom. So we talk about amateur players learning this. <laughs> These are things even someone like Patrick Reed tends to bring the face down, has kind of laid back, a little open. Yeah. The difference is, is Patrick is so good with his hands, and they can still lean the shaft forward and manage the face, where, you know, the amateur has a hard time maintaining integrity of the shaft lean and scoring the face up at the same time. So it's a, it's a fascinating topic because it is worked on across the board of all skill sets. And it has so much value in development of a amateur player, but then also even for a player like Patrick to just keep things a little bit simpler through the impact zone when the heat's on. 
Right, and and just from an application standpoint, uh, when you when you're working with an amateur golfer or a mid-range player, and they and they have an optimal, you can point that out to them. Uh, what I what I try to keep balanced in that is that what they've been doing has been working at one level, mm -hmm. and it's not maybe working out optimally. You can explain that to them. So if you um, are if they're in this process of change and they do both their old way of squaring the club, which would be say more of a flip style, very fast closure through the um, impact mm -hmm. and they close it as well. They're going to see some pretty shocking as a right-handed golfer left misses. <laughs> and both of those, you close it early and through impact, you're going to feel like you're going to hit yourself as a right-handed golfer in the left foot. <laughs> you, you, I think you got to be, like, all right, like this might be coming. And also, is someone ready to handle that miss? Mm -hmm. um, and and then the the coaching argument to be made is like, oh, well, first of all, they need to do that. And then they because they'll see this way left ball as a right-handed golfer, um, a, sh a shocker, that they'll stop doing that. Well, for some, I agree with that. For others, uh, they may leave the lesson environment and go, whoo, boy, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm in low lefters and I, I just can't do that um so the that's there's the balance because the before they they were i mean unless they're a raw beginner or they're way off um, in any they were doing some things well yeah that fast style of closing yeah yeah when you start messing with the face it, you mess with this side then the other side is going to have to complement at some point right to get it to work out and there's a learning curve there and i think the more you can prepare them for what's going to happen or potentially happen they they okay that makes sense and i can work through that as we change these wrist angles the other thing i want to talk to you about um and perhaps you can relate to the 3d world is this idea of you know the downswing for years jeff when i was you know i've been doing this for 21 years when i was playing a lot at an early age you know i was taught to turn my upper and kind of resist with my lower right my right knee i'm a right-handed player would stay flexed and I, and I really wouldn't turn my hip at all and if you watch me swing i you can certainly see that although i work on it and certainly get a deeper hip turn now than i used to but I've learned over the time that as I keep that trail knee flex, I tend to kind of push off launch laterally more. And then I, you know, I kind of one of those players that can hang and right bend and, you know, get the, the slinger, right. The, okay. that kind of deal. So, um, as I teach and as I, you know, kind of continue to get into the trenches with people and, and you, and you learn now how to straighten that right leg a little bit more and you get the right side of the pelvis a little higher and, now the, all of a sudden it's it's you're less likely to launch and it feels like you can kind of almost sit and rotate a little bit better versus turn the upper not the lower keep that knee flex and then you you, you almost like push off like a shot putter you know and, and and kind of launch forward is that is that an accurate description of some of the things that you see when it comes to say changing of knee flex in the backswing or not changing the knee flex kind of old school turn turn the upper not the lower well, the, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago, old school versus uh, new school. I, what was, uh, what is helpful for me is understanding that, okay, if we, if normal range of motion for your, um, your thorax, your upper body, mm -hmm. uh, for, um, 
uh, a flexible person is going to be somewhere around 70 degrees of turns to the right, 65, 70 degrees to the right. And, and if we want to get to 90, that's got to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. So that's where the hip comes in. You got to, you got to have um, rotation in uh, internal rotation rail hip to then give that look that everybody's after of that full load. Uh, the other thing that is helpful for me is now coming from the world of um, pressure and force plates is that um, max pressure under the right foot happens at generally about lead arm parallel to the ground on the backswing. That's when max pressure is occurring. So for this old style, older style, we'll talk about where it was more of this, you know, load, 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 people would tend to, and you would maybe fit in this category, get lost on their right leg. Like you, you're, you're trying to load your, your leg a lot. You're, um, you're losing that pressure point as you get deeper. Um, mm -hmm. That transition gets harder, and that's usually when something else will need to fire to get you back to the left, either a big lateral movement of your pelvis or a pull down or something. So this understanding now through uh, another um, pretty sophisticated tool like a force plate, um, you see, all right, max pressure for these long hitters is underneath this trail foot at very early in the back, much earlier than thought. All right, and then things are already starting to push off of there back to the left. And that's why when people who were doing this without knowing it never felt like they needed to have any kind of instigator. They were into their, they were into their transition and into the downswing because of this coiling movement. Mm -hmm. And getting the balance right between how much lateral, so uh, this coming from 3D data, you know, that average for the PGA Tour database is right around four inches. So you know, I see people now that has have potentially taken it too far, where they never shift laterally enough. They, they you know, they, they're, they, uh, so get it. That's that's where three D is very helpful. Like, all right, we're going to be dealing with. We, we need to get three inches of lateral movement somewhere in there. And if it happens earlier in the in the uh, backswing or in transition, it's just when it tends to happen later as an instigator that's when it turns into an excessive slide and then you don't really have a place to be able to push off of and get the which is also now much more known about the the timing of how are these forces applied mm. uh, a, a, a vertical push and a, or a, the lateral and the rotation when are these movements are applied um that's just within the last couple of years more measured and yeah. i that um, that's still a work in progress. You kind of segued me right to my next point, which is, you know, there's outliers to all of it, right? And there's, no one's doing it the same way. We know that. There's different ways uh, to look at it. And, you know, you look at Max Coleman, the way that he swings the club versus a Tony Finau. I mean, there's they, they look different, you know, and then you throw a Matthew Wolf in there and sure. he's very different. And then you throw Phil Mickelson in there and it's like, oh my gosh, we have a lot of different stuff going on here, you know, amongst these players and they're all elite players. And when I look at, you know, and I've watched your stuff and I look at your stable of players, they all do look different. They don't look the same. I look at a lot of teachers and Instagram and others and their players look the same. I mean, they, they just, they swing the club pretty much the same way from, the way that the wrist angles look, the way that their lower body's working. And, you know, there's just a lot of similarities across the board. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that into my eyes, there is a, there's a very consistent look here. There's a method being taught. 
Um, when I look at yours, I see a little wider range of things happening, right? And um, and and one of those players you talked for many years had great success with was Daniel Berger, who is, I mean, you want to talk about different looking swing, right? I mean, that his wrist angles, there's probably not another person that's like that um, when it comes to managing as a coach those components. And you look at Joe and you look at Andrew and you look at all the other players that you have Will, on your site. And the Will McKenzie comes to mind. Okay. Will McKenzie, yeah, thank you. Yeah, very weak grip. You know, yeah. Supposedly weak grip. And then Carl Peterson had some, all you know, these idiosyncratic moves. Um, very upright. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So um, so my question to you is this, Jeff. So when you're managing that, right, as a, as a top coach, and you're managing these players, how do you – and this is a loaded question I get. How do you balance – you know, I'm going to – I need to make a technical change. I need to kind of get in there and, and – convince him that we need to do this right but yet balance the the genius that is the player right like you don't want to take away from the instincts of a carl peterson or a bird or whoever or a joe it's a it's a give and take there's no perfect match there is it like you just you got to get in sometimes like here's what i want to do but i'm going to protect the dna of the player. Is that is that accurate yeah and this is a this is where uh, certainly 3d helps because you um in a simplified way, when I'm uh, looking at this and, and also sending this, because uh, part of this process is to send the information off and get opinions. So uh, I, on my website, I have this, uh, call it an advisory board. I, I would say more it's in a collaboration. Uh, mm-hmm. Send that information off and get people's opinions. And um, I am looking at uh, like a, a column of A's and B's. Okay, is this A matching this B? And then um, there is an ele- there's certainly an element of uh, ball flight. Okay, like this is person producing uh, a consistent face to path relationship so that they can high level golf. And then either they are, and then all right, is it what are we really trying to improve? Well, maybe distance now. I mean, so then you would be looking at or what, what can, what optimizes distance here without negatively affecting this face to path relationship, if that's good enough. Or if they don't have a good control of their golf ball, meaning that something's off with face to path. Why would, where would that be? And then looking at that column of A's and B's, all right, what, what is less likely here to match up and what is, uh, what is cosmetic? What I tend to look at is a car analogy for looking at the engine and the steering. And at some point, those things are overlapping, like two circles, well, they're overlapping in the middle, but we've got an engine work and then we've got steering. So in golf, the, the pivot, the movement of the body is the engine, and then how they're generating steering wheel is the wrist angles and the control of the club face. Mm-hmm. So there's no point, in my opinion, to start to look at if someone's having club face control, the first place to look is what is their wrist angles doing? And, and that's when you would say, all right, in that overlap area between these two things, are they moving in a way that's having a negative effect on this wrist angle? If they're having good wrist control or wrist uh, movement because the club face control is good, what's the engine like? Why, what, is there something off here um, that uh, might have a negative effect on them, their ability to be able to generate speed or so on or risk injury? That's the other thing that you got to be mindful as a coach. All right, is it, you know, okay, this thing's really good. Um, and then when you're dealing with someone, we just use Daniel as an example, is very dynamic, young man, you know, lots of stuff going on there. What's happening there that may uh, long term have a negative effect on his ability to, well, like the, that there might be a risk of injury there. The essence of coaching right there. Yeah, for sure. And it's um, and every player is so different. You know, it really is. It's it's um, that's why I I tend to I, I really like looking at coaches that have a wide 
range of looking swings, you know, and players. And then I told David that too. I was like, you know, I, I, you know, that you have a lot of guys that look different. Um, you know, Butch certainly had a lot of guys that look different. And I think the coaching of all those different players and personalities and matching components, like you were saying, A and B is really uh, the essence of coaching. It just feels like also that the genius within a player like a Will or a Daniel can flourish within that more than maybe the other way. Perhaps that's overstated, but it just feels that way. Um you know, when um, they don't all look the same, right? They all look a little bit different. The, uh, like, it would be at this stage, because uh, golf's been around so long and there's uh, quite a bit of money in it <laughs> when you do it well, it would be Darwinian at this stage if there was one way of doing it, that yeah. we would have a, a prototypical motion. And yet, right now, we're probably dealing with some of the, mo the most diverse time. Because in my opinion, why that's happening is that we've got a lot of young men who watched Tiger Woods growing up, and they were um, athletic young men, and they chose to play golf. And that athleticism and in good, with good coaching and good relationships was, was allowed to flourish. It was, it was nurtured. So uh, I give a lot of credit to George Yankis and his relationship with Wolf uh, and said, oh, boy, you know, that does not look conventional or it should look more like this. And uh, I'm choosing that word on purpose, look, because – right. Um, it looks a certain way, but it functions at a very high level. And, and for a long time, I've used Jim Furyk as an example, you know, like, all right, you know, it was at, at Jim and his father have done a phenomenal job over his career to be able to balance. All right. My golf swing well, without question looks like this, but it yeah. functions, um, very well, you know, it, it, and so trying to differentiate between something that functions well versus the way it looks is um, I would say the summary of how I would look at the difference between 2D and Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's very well summed up. And I can tell you firsthand from Jim, he practices right next to me at Pablo Creek in Ponte Vedra. And his dad's back there. They're both members. And I know them both well. I'm just, you know, watching him hit. He's playing really good right now. I think he's made the last two cuts, a couple of top 25 finishes at the age of 50 on the regular tour. Yes. And, uh, it's just incredibly efficient and accurate. He'll sit there and hit short game shots and he'll hit the flag stick. I, I mean, it feels like every 10 minutes from 50 yards. I mean, it's just crazy. It's almost intimidating. My students are turning around like, goodness gracious, he's just lighting up the flag stick from 50, 60 yards. Yeah. But it, it is, uh, that's a great example. Wolf's a great example. Um, you know, and then, and then there's the other side of it, the guys that make changes, like a, Max Holma made I would say fairly good change in the pitch of the shaft at the top and some of his technique that he works on with Mark Blackburn. Um, and it's, it's worked out very well for him. It's a, it's a sensitive uh, topic when you start getting in there with those high level players and you start changing shaft pitch and wrist angles and body dynamics, because you're messing with the genius of, of the player, but sometimes it's needed and it's cool when it works out, but there's examples where sometimes it doesn't. And I think that just makes the art of the coaching aspect of it. It, it just, it's not a perfect script. You know, you just can't just follow the script every time and everybody just falls within it. Um, but it's a, always a learning process. And I would imagine as I do, you just learn from, you, you learn from your players almost as much as they're learning from you and how they're conceptualizing it and, and internalizing it and learning it. And then just trying to kind of follow that path as you go, because that's the way they're learning it from you as you learn it from them per se.
field. You 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 spend some a lot of time in due diligence, and then you're going to prescribe something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the key to that is that you also make the person aware that there's some side effects from this. Okay, like and also you don't want to be taking the whole pill bottle because there's definitely going to be side effects. So you uh, if they're aware of the side effects. Um, then there's some back and forth that is going on, and, and then you're able to make a determination like, okay, having a positive effect, handle these minimal side effects, or they can't. Then we got to change medicine here. It, it doesn't mean maybe that it's the right direction or that it will have value, but there's an, there would be another way to maybe get at this. And mm-hmm. so that's, I think, very important is to monitor and and. In, to the best of your ability from a coaching perspective is to be able to have uh, aware or what are the possible side effects from this so that right. they're aware of it so they're not just hitting them right in the face yeah it's uh it's uh i love the journey though i love taking the players on the journey and seeing the development and uh, that's the beauty of golf everybody whether you're max homo whether you're will mckenzie carl peterson or 15 handicap eight handicap that you're going to see this afternoon, whatever. Everybody's just trying to kind of move the needle in the right direction and improve the probability of impact, develop more skill, whatever the case may be. And as we just kind of keep going in that direction, that's all great for the game. So, I, hey, Jeff, I really uh, appreciate your time, you know, coming on the podcast here. Love watching your stuff. And um, my audience, we'll give them a follow there at uh, follow at Instagram, Jeff underscore Leishman Golf, right? Is that, is that yeah. L-E-I-S- H-M-A-N, golf. Same spelling as uh, as my non-cousin, Mark. Yes. <laughs> your brother. No. Yes, my non- brother. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for joining the podcast. So we'll do it again. Okay. Thanks for having me. Okay, you bet. Let's take a second to talk about the guys and girls over at Encore Golf. Encore has earned a reputation of having the most cutting-edge technology in their golf balls that the industry has seen in quite some time. Their team in Buffalo, New York, is changing the script of golf technology through the perimeter-weighted designs, use of high-density particles, and even a nano-transitional layer in their latest creation, which offers players enhanced accuracy and control for every shot on the course and extreme velocity off the tee. They already have their award-winning Elixir and Avant 55 golf balls, but the new Vero X1 is the highest performance ball to date with their full suit of golf balls. They are transforming the game for players of all skill levels. Visit EncoreGolf.com slash Travis Fulton for more details about their products that are revolutionizing the game. Now back to the Stripe Show podcast. 